I'm Mark Leon Goldberg, the managing editor of UN Dispatch and your host of the Global Dispatches podcast. So here's the deal. You are listening to episode one of what I hope to be, of what will be, uh, a weekly-ish podcast in which I interview you know, foreign policy luminaries, makers, dignitaries, think tankers, journalists, you name it, people who have their hand in the big pressing foreign policy questions of the day. A bit more than your run-of-the-mill interview. What I really hope to do is try to get you to know a little bit uh, who these people are, what makes them tick, what some of their foreign policy influences were from a early age, and you know how they see the world. And these are these are people who are either policymakers or they, in some way, help shape our foreign policy conversation. So I think we as foreign policy consumers uh, should have a bit of an understanding of where these people come from. I'm particularly excited to kick this conversation off with a talk with Heather Hurlbert, someone who I've admired for a long time. She is the executive director of the National Security Network and is, I guess, I would call her, I suppose, like a messaging guru. Uh, her background is in speech writing and is in policy and is in the foreign service, as you will uh, learn. Uh, but our conversation is really interesting. We talk about, well, I'll let you decide. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, hi, Heather. Hi, Mark. Uh, so we are talking on sort of the day after red line day. Was Obama sort of articulating this red line, do you think, a mistake? And now he's sort of backed into a corner and has to decide what to do? Well, it wasn't so much a mistake as it, you know, it may turn out to present yet another challenge. It was um, a genuine and good faith effort, I think, to, uh, to, I mean, you know, you could say it was giving Assad an opportunity to observe some limits. Mm-hmm. And it seems clear that Assad has chosen not to observe them. Um, I mean, you know, still subject to some uncertainty uh, in the intel community about where the, sam- the samples that seem to show the presence of sarin came from. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a mistake to try to use the tools that you have and when you when you don't have um when you don't have support from all the security council members for unified un action when you don't have unified regional support for a single course of regional action um when you don't have assad suppliers willing to cut him off you know this was an attempt to use the power to use the the rhetorical power of the us and the global power of of the norm 
Um, now that that seems to have failed, um, you know, having chosen to use that power, you now have sort of a higher threshold of seriousness that you have to meet in your response. Right. So the idea is that, you know, you've, you've made this threat or you've set this red line, assuming I think that this red line has been crossed, at least to some degree, sort of it, it sort of almost compels the U.S. to take some action. Um, what, I mean, are there any sort of good policy options? Are there any good, uh, I know that your outfit is sort of putting together and, and just put together a list of some potential, you know, uh, potential options for the U.S. to pursue. None of them seem sort of all that great. <laughs> well, you start with saying, okay, so what are your, what are your goals? Um, do you have the narrow goal of getting Assad not to use any more chemical weapons? Do you have the broader goal of stopping or, or limiting the killing of civilians? Is your goal to end the conflict? Is your goal to remove Assad from power? Or is your goal to remove the chemical weapons from, from Syria? Mm-hmm. So, um, there aren't any options that promise that they will easily achieve any of those goals without significant side effects. Um, mm-hmm. But there are, you know, a, a lot of the public debate kind of immediately jumped to either we should do nothing or we should send in troops to secure the chemical weapons or we should blow Assad's Air Force out of the sky. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of other options um, and the sort of the subtleties of, of how you actually deal with the apparatus of repression kind of tend to get lost in the excited red line, red line, red line discussion. Yeah, and, and, and we'll talk about that because there are some, some, you know, the predictable um, sort of predictable people from predictable corners of punditry sort of have, have jumped, have seized on this. I don't know if you saw Jeffrey Goldberg's piece today calling for, you know, no-fly zone. Of course, McCain, uh, you know, has been calling for no-fly zone and arming rebels. Um, You know, I I, I wanted to ask you, um, so, you know, it seems as if there's like a a group of of kind of, you can call them maybe liberal, sort of neoliberal pundits, who are of a certain generation, you know, maybe 40, 50 years old, who sort of seem to have not drawn maybe the same lesson from the Iraq war as a different generation of foreign policy practitioners and, and pundits, say people in their twenties and and thirties have. Um, and, and, you know, almost, you know, and, and it seems that this older generation uh, is, you know, it seems not to have drawn that, that same Iraq lesson is now calling for more aggressive, assertive U S military intervention in Iraq. I'm wondering, I mean, do you see that generational? Divide? I would frame that really differently from you, but perhaps okay. that's because I'm in my forties. Right. Um, but well, you're um, the exception clearly. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, not actually. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about that then. Please so, reframe. So, the way, so, so you have, um, I think the, 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 the big question is, do you differentiate between um, occupation of a country for which many reasons were given, including humanitarian ones, mm-hmm. and occupation of a country that happened without uh, a force to receive you, without a government in waiting, which describes both Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and operations that were designed um, more wholly, although, you know, again, complicated um, complicated uh, motives. There are always complicated motives in international affairs, and anyone who tells you there aren't just, you know, isn't being serious with you, um, that were designed to deliver control of a society to indigenous forces within the society. So in that category, I would put Bosnia, Kosovo, Libya, Cote d'Ivoire, all cases where there was an indigenous um, 
leadership structure waiting to take power, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you're like intervening on behalf of a group yeah. right. that already inter- maybe has guns or has some sort of degree of political support. That has some legitimacy. Um, and in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you can't really point to, to who that was. And, and that, I think, those of us who've lived through some of these processes and, and you know, particularly who served in government during them, you know, to me, that's a really key difference so that when the 20-something punditocracy says, oh, you know, we can't go in Syria because it's just like Iraq, well, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's different from Iraq isn't a sufficient argument for going in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, I'm not a John McCain you know, anywhere there's a problem, we should use the 82nd Airborne to fix it. Right. Um, and I'm still very dubious on Syria. And, and for the record, part of the challenge in Syria is that um, the, there, it has been difficult to stand up a political force that you could turn over power to. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in practice in this case, I tend to come – I still come down on the I'd really like to see a plan for intervention that I thought would work, but I haven't seen one yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not because temperamentally I agree with the people who are saying, oh, well, this is just like Iraq and clearly we shouldn't, we shouldn't do it. So, so that's the, the generational difference mm-hmm. that I would draw. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you, people, you know, point to 9-11 as sort of the defining sort of foreign policy moment for people. You know, I'm, I'm 32 for people my age, but it really isn't. It was really the debacle of Iraq um, that sort of, I think, has colored um, my perception and the perception of a lot of my peers' approach to, you know, the, the, the role of American military in the world. And I think, you know, from people uh, maybe of your generation who cut their teeth in the Balkans, who saw, you know, maybe, you know, who, who saw a different, you know, drew, drew that different lesson. I think that's, you know, it's an interesting kind of question to explore, like, like where, um, you know, when, when people of the, you know, when people who sort of drew that single defining lesson sort of start to assume positions of power, are we going to enter a sort of a more almost realist phase of American foreign policy? Well, I actually think the people who hold positions of power right now are realists of the 50 to 70-year-old generation, mm-hmm. um, some of whom, you know, got their realism out of Iraq and some of whom got it out of Vietnam mm-hmm. and some of whom, frankly, got it out of the conclusion that you there's only so much you can do in American mm-hmm. policymaking at any given time and you have yeah. to prioritize and um, taking a taking a, a, a low-profile realist approach to American foreign policy is one way of, of triaging the many, many demands on your, on your power, if you will. So um, I do think, you know, maybe, um, and this will offend people, but um, this isn't something invented by 20-somethings. <laughs> um, you know, you look at a... Maybe rediscovered by uh, 20-something, 30-something <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. The other thing that I, I would just say, which I find so d- distressing as a 40-something, is how often um, the uh, the arguments of the Bush administration get used by um, get taken at face value and used by my fellow progressives mm-hmm. um, to argue against you know the kinds of things that frankly you and I both support on yeah. the on the humanitarian side and so I like, so something like you know Bush used the pretext of weapons of mass destruction to invade a country. So we shouldn't have prohibitions against chemical weapons. Right. That's or sort of, yeah. Bush talked about human rights in the Middle East, and therefore it's illegitimate for right. the U.S. To, to be concerned about human rights mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Um, um, 
So, so just going back to your point that sort of policy right now is largely driven by the 50 to 70-year-old realist camp. And I think, you know, you can you know, say I think that's probably where Obama's, you know, sympathies lie mostly. You can see Chuck Hagel's nomination as an example of that. Um, it would seem to me that talking about your earlier uh, point about what goals should be for what, – what goals the U.S. should set for Syria policy, it would seem that if – policy is driven by that sort of old realist guard, then the goals should, would probably be pretty narrow and probably just focus uh, pretty exclusively on the, um, you know, on, on, on sort of securing the chemical weapons. Does that strike you as, as probable? Well, except sort of the one problem with that is if you saw um, Marty Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, who testified on this last week and said, um, no, I'm not at all confident that we can secure the chemical weapons because mm-hmm. we know Assad's been moving them around. Mm-hmm. So um, the realists in the administration are very well aware that making some blanket promise to um, you know sort of go in and find every chemical weapon and take care of it is is not you know is not realistic in the in the non-specific sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the way the way I think. Um, the way I perceive that the realist guard has been thinking about Syria is, first of all, what can the U.S. achieve in Syria at an acceptable cost in terms of other global objectives, given that an administration can only handle so many crises at a time? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of realist lens number one. And, and then realist lens number two is um, – if, as a, a real a capital R um, card carrying political science realist, you do somewhat devalue the notions of, of humanitarian and human rights ends um, as ends in themselves, then you're going to be willing to put less effort into that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a second a second realist lens that you. Yeah. that you put on this. Now, now I'll just say from my personal perspective, um, I think there's a pretty strong realist counter argument, which is that y- you need, the U.S. needs a certain measure of increasingly democratic stability across the Middle East to achieve our basic security goals um, around regional peace, around lack of further proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, around free flow of energy, uh, around security of our allies in the region, and arguably letting Syria just kind of continue to decompose really runs counter to that. So so I personally would argue that, that uh, you know, a realist – a realist argument may eventually lead you down some some non-realist paths, but but I'm I'm a very heterodox realist. <laughs> Great, <laughs> and, and I look forward to exploring the roots of that of that heterodoxy actually, um, and and sort of get a sense from you of you know what where where your early foreign policy influences were and you know what made you take you know we know each other I think a little bit professionally I don't know very much about you personally I do know that you are a Red Sox fan <laughs> can I extrapolate from that that you're from the Boston area or are you just part of the larger Red Sox nation um, my dad is a card-carrying Vermonter um, we lived in Vermont while I was a child um, among other places uh, dad um, also lived in Massachusetts and came in second in a high school competition the, pro- the first prize of which was to live broadcast a Red Sox game. Mm. Uh, so I grew up with that in my blood, went to college in, in uh, the great state of Rhode Island, home of the Paw Sox. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, from the Red Sox in the 
pre-2004 era and from the general um, cussedness of my Yankee forebearers. You know, I, I got a strong um, sort of sympathy for the underdog right. and, and a certain cussedness. Um, right. I actually just recently had a really wonderful experience, which was the chance to go hear lecture um, someone who wrote a book in high school that really did as much as any one thing did to push me into international relations, um, and that was Hedrick Smith's The Russians. What is so excellent? This is this is I think before my time. What explain? So Hedrick Smith um, was a New York Times writer, um, ran the New York Times Washington bureau at one point, and also served as the Times um, correspondent in Moscow at one of the heights of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book, which is very readable, very non-political science and was very humanizing of Russia as a, as a society and as a culture. Um, and when it came out, it caused quite a sensation um, for the the presentation that it gave of Russians to people who didn't have any other avenues to know anything about Russians beyond the fact that they had nuclear weapons pointed at us. Mm-hmm. So um, that there was a, a deeply um, a deeply human the idea that that you could at once hold in your head the idea of this culture as a mortal enemy, and also a really fascinating and complex culture that was completely different from from our own. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a really profound early influence. It made, it made you want. It made you sort of want want more. Want to learn more. Were, yeah, well, were your parents sort of involved? Was your dad involved in foreign policy at all? Well, in fact, um, my parents were both journalists. They met mm-hmm. on the staff of the Syracuse Daily Orange. Um, my mother got a master's degree from Fletcher and um, wanted to join the Foreign Service, but the Foreign Service in those days did not accept married women. Uh. And my mother also knew she wanted to marry my father. So um, her own career in this field was, was sort of cut off before it was born. She worked at the Voice of America. What, um, year, what, what year was it? Was that, were we talking about like maybe like the 60s? 60s, yeah. What, what was um, the, the just? I'm just trying to think of the justification. Was there like a national security justification for banning married women from joining the foreign service? Well, naturally, once you were married, you had more important things to make your first priority, Mark. Right. Okay. Sure. Clearly. Clearly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just you know, so, I, I mean, so one yeah. thing, I mean, actually, about my career trajectory is both that I have had at every, you know, I was able to go to a college that wasn't open to women when my mother was going to college. Mm-hmm. I was taken quite seriously, though I had my share of, oh, you know, you don't want to work on arms control. Women don't like that. Um, but I was able to, to a field that was open to me that wasn't open to her. And you know, with the change of, of information technology and the the democracy organization, small d, of our policy arenas, you know, most of the jobs I've had either didn't exist or I didn't know about them when I was in college. So mm-hmm. the, the field just shifted. And the, the last thing I should say about early influences, by the way, is that what I really wanted was not to go to college and to be a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. So um, so the, the appearance of Russian studies on the horizon, you know, gave me a way to sort of console myself and stay engaged with this culture that in some ways I had been completely immersed in, um, in I high can, school. Yeah. I can, I can sort of relate to this idea of not, of, of getting a job after college that you didn't, that didn't exist in college as a professional uh, blogger. <laughs> Blogs didn't quite exist when I was uh, doing the job hunt in the early 2000s. And right. <laughs> Neither did, when yeah. did, when did podcasts start? Um, I think, 
a few years after the advent of the iTunes. Actually, I can tell you, my first uh, job out of uh, out of college was at the New America Foundation as a research assistant, uh, and I was talking to. I was actually a research assistant to, to you know to Steve Clemens, to Peter Bergen, to Mike Lind. It was a really it was a great great sort of first out of first year out of college kind of job. Um, but I remember a, a cubicle mate of mine had, you know, had had an iPod and, and was listening to something on his earphones. And he was like, so what are you listening to? Or what do you, what kind of music do you listen to? And he said, mostly just podcasts. And I had never heard of a podcast in <laughs> 2003. So I think around then is probably a, a, a good answer. Right. Well, to, um, to offer a similar tech story. So my um, first job out of college was actually working at a little think tank on the Brown campus that did some of the first uh, U.S.-Soviet academic exchanges that were, that were allowed. And mm-hmm. so um, I, you know, had the fun of, um, of experiencing that um, at, a, at a very human level and, again, really, you know, having to confront sort of both high and personal politics at the same time, um, got to Washington, um, landed a job on, on the Hill, and we actually had a raging debate in our office about whether our office wanted to be connected to the Internet. And a yeah. lawyer who I worked with, a very talented international lawyer, was very opposed to it because she said, if we can have access to the Internet, we'll be responsible for knowing everything on there. <laughs> it's actually kind of it's a compelling argument. I can... You know, as someone who lives and dies by by the internet, I can I, I sort of understand where she's coming from. Yeah. So you know, yeah. the, so the the funny thing though about I mean, so I sort of went off to college, um, decided to be a Russian major, mm-hmm. go and live in the Soviet Union. Um, what year? What sort of around? What years are we talking about? Uh, I graduated in 1989. So this is this is like you're you're in the middle of this. The, this is a, a clean podcast, but you're you're in the middle of it. I would imagine right right in '89. Yes. Wow. Oh no. So I'm um you know I was in I was in Kiev when Reagan went to Moscow, and I would have random babushki stop me on the street and say, "Oh, you understand now that we don't hate America and we're not evil." <laughs> Um, and I went to the first ever public meeting in Kiev where um, people got up and talked about their experiences in prison camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was an incredibly heady time. Um, and then did, I was like – Can I did, – now, did sort of Russian attitudes of America, in your opinion, sort of mere American attitudes of Russia, or did they have a more nuanced or less nuanced sort of understanding of, of what the U.S. is all about? Um. Definitely didn't have a more nuanced understanding, maybe spent more time thinking about us than we spent thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I was going to say, one of the things that happened to a lot of American college students um, was that there was this real romance of, of Russian culture. And you, you went off to Russia, and on the one hand, you know, people who had bought into the romance of socialism tended to be kind of horrified by the, the realities of what life was like there. Um, but at the same time, it was a society where people sat around the table talking late into the night about great themes and who, you know, still read their great national literature. And, you know, you, you, you tended to have a significant number of, of American students of Russian who came home, you know, bought into this idea of the, the Ruskaya Dusha, the Russian soul, that there was something sort of unique and special about the, the Russians, whereas we had, you know, materialized and corrupted ourselves. And so then when, um, you know, the Iron Curtain comes down and the government changes and all of a sudden people can have all the cable TV and porn that they wanted, um, it was really quite difficult for many Americans who had been steeped in, in 
the romance of the Russian experience, you know, in a, in a not necessarily even ideological way. Um, so, so the, because they had not very, you know, for example, the, the author, Jack London, mm-hmm. um, Russians were, you know, he was one of the few American authors they knew because he was a quite strident socialist. And people would talk to you at length about details of his works and what was Alaska like and all this kind of thing. And I was like, I don't have the slightest idea. Um, In a way that you did not encounter from Americans who, you know, since the average American had not avidly devoured um, Gulag Archipelago. Right. Okay. Um, okay, it's 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 uh, kind of almost interesting, you know, and and it seems as if sort of Russian studies, you know, which you would think would not be in ascendance now that people, you know, that that sort of the young, ambitious foreign policy people are all kind of looking at the Middle East or looking at China. But it seems that Russia is kind of almost on the comeback. I mean, we're talking earlier about Syria. I mean, they're the key player in Syria. They're the you know, they are, you know, still among sort of understanding sort of, I think, Russian decision-making processes and what makes Russia tick is still sort of a super crucial skill and, and uh, you know, something, you know, to, to, to know, to have in understanding sort of how, you know, U.S. foreign policy works. Yeah, I would say Russia went too far out of style. Okay. Um, if you know what I mean. That, yeah. that, that the tragedy about Russia is that it, it hasn't... Um, economically or socially made, um, forgive the terminology, a leap forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's ways that often Russia's power is, is, is exercised negatively, as is the case with Syria right now, yeah. or as they're able to do more broadly on the Security Council. But um, everything from their their geographic position, you know, we need them in Afghanistan, their energy position, yeah. their aspirations toward the Middle East, you know, and they in turn have their own, you know, enormous. There's a there's a city in um, far eastern Russia where the mayor is actually a Chinese citizen. Mm-hmm. And parts of Russia that that Russia is not able to to adequately resource, but that the Chinese are are spilling over the border to to trade and resource. And so there's this interesting question of of you know whether this reverses the Russian colonization and conquest of 150 wow. years ago. That's... So so Russia, you know, it takes up enough of the Earth's space and has a big enough resource and diplomatic profile that mm-hmm. you're not you're not going to be able to manage the world without it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. It's it's interesting. Now, of course, you know there's there's the whole Chechnya connection and the Boston bombing. So you wonder if that will spur at least some interest, some some new new interest, uh, you know, among people in in getting to know Russia a little better. Um, so sorry. So so you're in Russia. You are uh, in. You're just out of university, correct? Um, so I actually was there during college, mm-hmm. and then um, I got an internship at the State Department right after graduating and desperately wanted to work on the Soviet desk and did mm-hmm. not get to work on the Soviet desk. And this is this is a great um, life lesson about lemons and lemonade, because instead of getting put on the Soviet desk, I got put on the regional European political military affairs desk. And yeah. I am ashamed to say I could not name all the countries of NATO when I got that job, and there were only 12 of them at the time. Um, so I walk into this office and, um, this is the office that does arms control and this is the office that does regional security and it's the summer of 1989 and suddenly this is interesting in a way it never has been before. And, um, 
I was mentored. I was allowed to go to meetings. I was encouraged to do stuff. I didn't get a job right away. And a few months later, I get a call from the Hill. Um, hey, we met you when you were filling in for the desk officer over the summer. We have an opening in our office. By the way, this opening involves regular travel to Vienna, Austria. Would you be interested? So um, I yeah. found myself on uh, as a congressional observer to the U.S. delegation to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, mm-hmm. which meant that I had a front seat for election observation all across the former Soviet Union for the outbreak of the wars in the Balkans, for efforts to institutionalize European regional security cooperation, and to really watch um, all the intellectual ferment about what was going to come after the Cold War. Mm-hmm. You know, in Europe, in Europe at the time, there was a lot of, you know, sort of NATO's going to go away and there won't be military alliances and we'll solve all our disputes peacefully and, you know, we won't need the Americans anymore. And then the Balkan Wars broke out and it was, oh my God, we need the Americans, but we don't know what we want them to do. Um, your, your story sort of reminds me, so I, I, like the first day of grad school at Georgetown, um, at the security studies program, Dan Byman was, was the head of the program at the mm-hmm. time. And he told this story in, in front of everyone. He said, you know, I was just out of grad school. I got a job at the CIA. It was 1989, 1990. And I really wanted to work on, on this, this, you know, important, you know, project. And they put me in charge of this totally obscure Gulf country called Kuwait. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. from there, my career was launched. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's sort of funny how those those accidents happen. But so you're at the OSCE at the, I guess the the the, the start of of the conflagration in in the Balkans, I would imagine. Yep. And and by the way, I speak Russian, and the only people on the U.S. delegation who speak Russian apart from me are the spies. Okay. So anytime you want to send somebody to a former Soviet republic or to talk to former Soviet leaders and you want to communicate that you're not spying on them, you have to send me, even though I'm the <laughs> 22-year-old congressional staff. Right, right. <laughs> um, so further to this, um, you know, you're, you, I, I have a theory about careers, actually, that um, everybody gets at least one big, completely serendipitous break. Um, and the big challenge is do you recognize it and what do you do with it when you get it? Mm-hmm. It is this pure dumb luck of, you know, you wound up on the Kuwait desk yeah. or whatever it is. And, 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 you know, this was mine. And so, you know, what really, I mean, what formed me about, about all of this was that I saw, you know, both what multilateral diplomacy is good for and its limits. And, you know, we sat, would sit up all night trying to negotiate statements on something and you'd get up and a market would have been shelled in, in um, Sarajevo mm-hmm. overnight. You... And at the same time, you saw that habits of cooperation were being formed and that these representatives of these new countries, you know, who hadn't been diplomats before, who hadn't been in the West before, were, were being, you know, sort of socialized and exposed and habits of cooperation were being built. And you could – actually, funny funny story, when the arms trade treaty was passed at the U.N. recently, I wrote a piece about it for foreign policy, and I was calling around and doing some interviewing, and come to discover that one of the things that inspired the amnesty campaigners to push for the treaty was a statement, OSCE statement, that I was involved in drafting in uh, 1993. Okay. What was the statement? Um, it was. It was a. I mean, and honestly, it was, a, it was a statement by the 52 at the time ambassadors at their regular weekly meeting about the importance of there being controls on conventional arms transfers. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was just kind of one of those things that you did, and you know, you sort of hoped that it would have some greater significance, but you maybe didn't really expect that it would. But it inspired other people to pick it up, pick up the idea, and take it to another level. So, so I really. Um, 
I'm, um, again, and this is a, another sort of generational challenge, I'm a much greater believer in um, chains of, um, in, in invisible chains of causality. Um, mm -hmm. That if you are just sitting outside and you only believe, you only believe that which can be tweeted, you are missing a lot of the intangibles by which international affairs actually functions or fails to function. Well, what, could you give another example of that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of be as, as someone who probably believes, you know, f falls into the only tweet what you believe sort of thing um, category. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just that there are so many. So, for example, um, something else from that period um, that I did was um, the delegations from the former Soviet Union, um, you know, we sort of split them up and everybody on our delegation said, okay, there's one group, there's one country that, that you're in charge of um, helping out. And so I worked with a country where, you know, and remember I'm in my early 20s, their ambassador was the same age as me because he was perceived to be untainted. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, you know, sort of showing this guy where is the meeting? How do you let the chair know it's your turn to speak? Um, what is the outcome of this meeting? What are you, how, you know, my government told me there's this I want to get done here. How do I do that? Who do I talk to? Um, just the most amazingly basic stuff. And, you know, some years later, this guy turns up as ambassador to Washington. Ah, what country? Made, can, can you disclose? No, no, uh, I'm not. Because... <laughs> Just, I mean, just between you and me now. Nice <laughs> um, no, try. But so that so often um, the most important things that we do in this business are are not the things that it's that it's really easy to write an article about. Mm -hmm. Were you um, involved in, in the Dayton process at all? Did did you sort of stick around the Balkans long enough? Uh, I actually, I just bare. I left. Um, I left OSCE in '94, and I joined. Um, Madeline, uh, no, I joined Warren Christopher State Department in November. November '94, and I think like maybe my first day on the job, my one of my co more senior colleagues went out to join the Dayton talks. So mm -hmm. I, I missed them. I was very involved in Kosovo. Mm -hmm. But I misstated. You know, you and, and it's it's. I'm, I've been sort of recently sort of thinking about parallels between sort of Bosnia and and, and Syria, and there are you know there definitely are some. Um, one of which is is obviously like the the increasingly sectarian nature of the violence, and you wonder if there is ever to be a diplomatic solution uh, to to uh, the crisis in Syria, if Dayton might be a model of, of sort of carving up. Syria into the various sort of ethnic groups and giving them relative autonomy over their area uh, is one way out of this of this crisis. Um, well, two things. I would actually, I would. That's not the right lesson to take from Dayton. I would say, but the first sort of melancholy parallel between Bosnia and Syria is that you have to remember how many years and how much killing it took in Bosnia before there was a coordinated international response. Mm -hmm. And I've discussed this actually with some of my colleagues from from Bosnia days. And you know, Bosnia took four years, and in Syria, we're only at year two. Mm -hmm. So just as a comment on how we in the international community are able to gather up the momentum to stop 
mass killing. That's a, a very sad commentary. The other point, which I think is actually more important about what finally worked in Bosnia, was that you had you had functioning government entities to negotiate with. And you know, people maybe don't remember this, but there was a point where Muslims and Croats were fighting each other in Bosnia, and the U.S. actually stepped in, um, and right. um, Holbrook and, and Dan Sir were known to known to your listeners maybe, yeah. actually went out and negotiated and agree, mediated an agreement that created a government of the Bosnian Federation, which could then negotiate with Serbia. Mm-hmm. And so, so the thing that's missing in the, in the Syrian situation is not, you know, outsiders coming in and saying, hey, we're going to help you guys cut up your country, but it's, it's the forces inside the country coming together enough to be able to negotiate on their, on their own behalf. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, it seems as if the, 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 the at least, you know, on, on Syria, the um, momentum is, is away from that, that there seems to be increasing, you know, and I probably as this conflict drags on into year three and four, we'll probably, you know, at least the outside world, the ethnic dimensions of this conflict will become much more readily apparent, um, I, I, I would imagine. Um, so, so, so getting back to you, you're, you're working for Warren Christopher. What are you, you're a, you're a speechwriter, is that right? So I came in as a speechwriter for Warren Christopher, um, and then, um, was lucky enough to be able to stay on and work in that same capacity for Madeleine Albright when she came in, um, which by the way was, was, um, I mean, so I was there, um, during Kosovo, during the aftermath of Bosnia, during some of the more challenging periods of our relationship with China, um, and really got to um, be a fly on a wall at quite a number. I think that of the, the euphemism of challenging parts in, in the relationship with China was the U.S. bombing the Chinese embassy. I would probably point out, right? Um, well, actually, no. Um, first Clinton term. Um, well, look, every new president has a, a China relationship crisis. You're right. And the Clinton administration had a pretty painful and bruising one um, in the first term, and sort of trying to work out. Um, what the relationship would be like, and Clinton had very successfully uh, in the campaign pushed George H.W. Bush pretty hard on, you know, sort of butcher of Beijing and all this kind of thing. Right. But then, you know, as happens to every president of every party, you get into office and discover that um, actually dealing with China is a lot of gray and not so much black and white. Do you ever read that book, The China Fantasy by James Mann? That sort of articulates no. that, that, that experience pretty well. Yeah, I haven't read it, but yeah. he's great. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then um, I went, um, I had the chance to go to the White House for the last year of the Clinton administration, and I okay. went rather than to the National Security Council as a domestic speechwriter ah. be- because I had noticed that any time um, an issue went into the political realm, um, um, the national security professionals got their butts kicked by the professional politicians. And so what were some of the, that, that's so interesting, what were some of like, the key battles then in the last the key sort of political battles, uh, domestic political battles that have sort of foreign policy consequences? Well, um, not so much. I, I guess it's less domestic battles that have foreign policy consequences than foreign policy battles that have domestic consequences. So, you know, for example, to take some from this administration, you know, you say on the campaign trail that you're going to negotiate, you're going to renegotiate NAFTA. Are you actually going to do that? Um, you have people at the Pentagon who really, really would like to keep more troops in Afghanistan, but that has huge domestic political consequences. You have people who would like to take a very activist role in Syria, which would have, you know, potentially enormous political consequences. You have, um, 
you know, um, people have talked for years that the most useful thing the U.S. could do to diminish global poverty would be to change our trade laws, change our ag change our agricultural subsidies, something with enormous political consequences, mm-hmm. you know. So, so actually that last one is kind of the, the perfect issue where if you are going to try to take on the ag lobby mm-hmm. and you want to take on the ag lobby and your argument is this would be good for poor people who live in other countries who will never come here and will never vote for you. <laughs> That's a pretty uphill battle to fight. You know, this actually just happened. I don't know how, how closely you followed this, but um, uh, Raj Shah, USAID administrator, uh, f- announced was it a couple weeks ago um, the uh, when the budget was released. That's when he announced it. That that sort of U.S. use food aid policy was going to change. And for those unaware, um, the U.S. is sort of the largest contributor to the world food program, but the way in which we contribute to the world food program is terribly inefficient. We subsidize American farmers and have to use American uh, wheat on American flagged vessels uh, around the world to to ship them, you know, around the world. So my um, observation has been that that, um, as a gross generalization, many of us who go into foreign affairs do it because we find it much more comfortable to look at the dysfunction of other societies than to get down and dirty up to our elbows in the dysfunction of our own society. So so I very deliberately, um, since I was lucky enough to have offers from both the NSC and the the domestic speechwriting staff, made the choice to to go see how the big boys played. Um, and after a terrifying first few weeks where I was really afraid I would mix up Medicare and Medicaid, um, I really dug in and had a great experience and, um, you know, was able to do a lot of issues that sort of seemed to cross the border between, between foreign and domestic. So, so that was a, a, a wonderful, amazing experience. And then having been a speechwriter for six years, I desperately wanted out. So I um, went to the International Crisis Group um, and helped them reestablish their, their Washington Advocacy Office, which was a great, a great experience of, of using my, you know, the sort of the skills I had learned to, to make other people sound smart, to sort of try to make an organization or myself sound smart. And then um, by this time I had, acquired, I had acquired a husband. I had imported a husband from New York City, and uh-huh. I said to him, um, I said, well, of course, I'm not moving because I work in the administration. You know, the next move can be yours. And then um, he finished his Ph.D. and got his dream job in Detroit. Uh. So um, I spent five years as um, doing consulting, freelancing, um, running my own strategy practice, having a baby. Um, and I actually recommend really highly, I mean, the I, sort of, I say jokingly, and I mean this jokingly, and I'm going to say jokingly every other word, so this can't be taken out right. of context, but the Maoist practice of making all the intellectuals go live in the countryside. That's if helpful. It isn't, if it's voluntary and not accompanied by a cruelty or re-education session, but um, to actually have a pulse on how things look from outside the Beltway makes you such a better advocate and policymaker. I get that. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm out here in Denver after living in DC for almost 10 years. So I, I sort of, I get it. I'm still, um, you know, the, the values of, of Colorado and, and of Denver are much different than the values of DC. So I'm still sort of trying to get my uh, head around it. Um, I have a, I think the, 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 you know, whereas, you know, at least, you know, DC is, is more sort of, and, and, you know, probably the coast are more outwardly looking Denver here is very inwardly looking and very sort of environmentally focused and sort of climate issues are increasingly important to me in my, in my daily life. So I, I sort of, I get where you're coming from for sure. 
Yeah. No, and I should say I was happy to go and happy to come back. And um, my my family is, or much of my family is in the D.C. area, and I have a wonderful and, and long-standing community of, of friends and peers. And I actually, I love Washington as a place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also loved both the experience of, of, you know, having to look at, having to look at America from a, a different way and having a slower pace of life and having dinner parties on weeknights and seeing the same friends every weekend. And, um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, I, um, I really think something that we don't stress enough in career development is how do people personally replenish and expand their own experiences? Um, because, you know, that's all you're going to have to draw on in the big moments and the big jobs. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I think we're, we're caught up to your uh, national security networkness. Now, my understanding, you know, I, I've followed the work of NSN for a while. I mean, would you describe sort of your your sort of place as sort of a messaging shop? As because um, it's kind of a think tank, but kind of advocacy. I, I'll let you describe it because it's, yeah, I describe it as a conveyor belt. Um, because we are closing the gaps between um, the folks who write brilliant 20 and 50 and 200 page papers about what to do, how the U.S. should be in the world, and the um, policymakers, advocates, media, talking heads who won't read anything longer than two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So um, we are we are identifying what are the issues that need to get into the bloodstream. We are surveying our network of experts to find out what the best takes are. We're condensing that into somewhere between two pages and two paragraphs. We're doing a a daily update four days a week or this week five days a week because of Syria. You can sign up for that by going to our website and it's yeah. network. And I get it. It's great. I I'll, I recommend it to everyone. Thanks. What is well, um, maybe just wrap uh, to, to so we're, we're running up on time, but I wanted to just wrap up by asking you, um, I guess your, your experience must have been so much different uh, during the Bush administration, the Obama administration, um, you know, because the, obviously the messaging challenges were, were, were obviously a, a lot harder. Would you, um, were, were, was your audience more receptive to your, to your messages during the Bush administration? Because there was almost this kind of like, you know, collective um, desire to want to find alternatives, whatever those alternatives might be. Whereas now there are sort of different factions in the sort of democratic progressive camp that, you know, at various times are griping against Obama or praising Obama. Um, Like how, I guess, how has that experience sort of been manifested? You know, it's a hilarious thing. There's certainly the opportunity for massive amounts of factionalism among um, liberals and progressives. But They're very good at it. But there's been, you know, but actually there's been such a, a breathtaking amount of, of crazy, um, I'm trying to think of other polite words to describe it, crazy factionalism on the right, that actually the left and center left is, is as tame as it has been at any point in my in my adult life. So the, the things that, that really have changed, you know, mm-hmm. first of all, um, for every nonprofit, every advocacy group, the funding universe is much tougher than it was in the um, – in the angstful, policy terrible, yet yet funding rich days before yeah. the elections and, and the crash. Yeah. Now, having said that, we at least have actually had the experience that we get at least as much attention, if not more attention, paid to us um, by the folks who now are in positions of power and have to make decisions and are, are grateful for grateful for the outside help. So, so for us, it's been a it's been a, a net positive. Um, 
the really big change, though, that has happened is is that the amount of interest that everybody had, you know, in the sort of 06 to 08, 05 to 08 period was that there was this fundamental debate going on about how the U.S. should be in the world, what to what extent the foundations of our approach to the world were engagement-based or, or um, confrontation-based. And, you know, that, that argument was won in 08. It was refought and rewon again last year. And the, the challenge that, that we face, which is, is both wonderful and, and difficult for me and for all my, my fantastic colleagues at, at NSN, is at once you're still fighting a rearguard action on that. You're still, you know, every time you want to talk to a bad guy, something Ronald Reagan was able to do without thinking twice about it, you have to fight. It's a political fight. It takes political capital. At the same time, we're so busy having that fight, we're really having difficulty taking the time and the intellectual energy to look forward and say, what's our vision? I mean, you know, back to Syria where we started, what's our vision for the Middle East in 10 or 20 years? Where does Syria fit into it? Where do we fit into it? What do we need to be doing? What are the things that look like hard, unpleasant choices today, but that make more sense if you fit them in towards this, towards this goal? And we, as a community, really have trouble ginning up the, the energy to do that, while at the same time, you know, you're still having to fight the sort of the non-scandal that is Benghazi. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really, you know, the that on net this has been a, a fantastic six, six six years to be to be doing this work, um, and yet you're you're so aware that we're we're so tied down in our momentary political challenges that it's hard to it's hard to be doing the big strategic thinking that we really deserve that the the country really deserves from its advocates and its intellectuals about the future. Mm-hmm. I could that, that's such a rich sort of thing to explore with. I feel like we could talk days and days and days about it, but you know, I think you'll, you'll leave us wanting more and then wanting to know what some of those big picture, uh, long-term conversations should be and should have, but, but maybe we'll save that for next time so I can let I you get back say, to work. I'll, I'll suggest some people you could interview in future podcasts. Let's do it. Let's do it. I would, I would love that. This is uh, you know, this is going to be an ongoing thing. Um, we have, I'm, I'm working on Paul Farmer. Should should hopefully oh, have him, uh, you know, because he has a new book he's trying to promote. So I'm working with them. Working on I have a sort of a whole list of people. Um, next up, though, I think is going to be uh, Laura Say, who's better known to the world as Texas and Africa. Oh yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's, that she's will really be, good. I I'll look forward to listening to that. Yeah, one. I think so. Hopefully, we'll, I'll try to get this once once a week, and hopefully, um, you know, people will uh, will take to it. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Fun times. Thank you very much to Heather Hurlbert. That was interesting. Uh, and yeah, you know, this is this is kind of the flow of the conversation that I hope to have with various policymakers, policy influencers uh, around the world. And finally, big thank you to Giancarlo Volcano, a composer who contributed his track to this podcast. Uh, the track is called Something Different, and it's from the soundtrack to the movie Unfinished Spaces. Thank you, everyone, and uh, hope to see you, or I won't actually see you, but uh, hope you will hear me speak to you in your earphones next week. Mm-hmm.